Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Community Conversations. So I have not done a second episode of this for a while, and how it generally works is if you reach out to me as part of an organization, advocacy, something you do professionally, that you feel I should cover or that you really want to make sure people know, I will sometimes set up interviews with you so we can explore these topics. I really try to keep it towards issues or policies or movements as this is not your opportunity to pretend that you are Matt Chrisman to come on a podcast for an hour. However, if you or your organization would love to be interviewed for something like this and have it promoted on my platforms, please reach out to me. You can DM me on Twitter. My email is egeorge1215 at gmail.com. And so with that, I have for you James Davis of the Bay Staters for Natural Medicines to talk about decriminalization of shrooms here in Boston. Really excited to be here with you, Evan. So Bay Staters for Natural Medicine is a grassroots group that started about a year ago in Somerville and has grown to have over a thousand volunteers across the state of Massachusetts. We don't fundraise any money, but what we do is end the war on drugs. So in four cities, Somerville, Cambridge, Northampton, East Hampton, and some big ones like Boston on the horizon, the police departments no longer arrest people for drug possession and instead refer them to health services and economic services to help people with addiction get back on their feet. And it also allows adults to grow and exchange plants like psilocybin mushrooms that have substantial benefits for depression, PTSD, and addiction too. So that's a broad overview of the work that we're bringing to the state. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, I should say uh, you and I met at the Michelle Wu Volunteer Party. So that's always a great way to meet like-minded people. And it just so happened just this year, it was my first time uh, doing what I'll, I'll call microdosing. <laughs> and so, you know, you kind of hit me as this is just a topic I'm uh, just growing and interested in and to try to learn more about. And, you know, I, I know indica, I know sativa, I know the different types of marijuana blends and how my body reacts to it. But I really don't know that much about the different types of shrooms. And I know that they have different uses, which you just alluded to. We'll get into it. But I guess for somebody who's like a newbie um, and... Entheogenetic plants, what are they? What are the different types? How does this all work? Definitely. So entheogen is a word we've all struggled with. And lawmakers, it's one of the funniest things to see lawmakers try to pronounce that as well. When we started out this advocacy, a lot of our volunteers didn't know how to pronounce psilocybin or ayahuasca. So it's a very unfamiliar topic in Western culture, and it's one that we're really excited to bring into the mainstream because it could benefit a tremendous amount of people, as you said, with microdosing or what they call macrodosing, which is taking a little more, three grams to five grams of psilocybin magic mushrooms. So entheogens are literally a class of plants and fungi uh, that bring you closer to God, hence the root word theo. And so that includes psilocybin mushrooms. There's many different types around the world. They grow on almost every single continent. 
and in all sorts of biomes across the world. There's ayahuasca, which is essentially a plant native to South America that can be used to derive DMT. And then when used in a brew, that DMT can last in your system a little longer than it would if you smoked artificial DMT, for example. So that's a different compound that catalyzes spiritual experiences. And then there's also cacti that contain mescaline, which catalyzes those experiences. And then a tree bark that only grows in West Africa, to our knowledge, called iboga, which can be used to create a medicine that literally rewires the brain to overcome addiction to opiates and alcohol. So these plants are all very, very different, and it's fascinating to get into the details of what each of them does. But generally, we believe that criminalizing these plants has been a travesty for public health, and they will unlock a revolution in mental health care if we're able to get these resolutions passed in more cities. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're definitely going to circle back to some of the studies uh, that are going on. Um, but just uh, to stay on kind of like the chemicals themselves, just so myself and uh, the audience has a better understanding. Because you uh, referenced uh, um, DMT, and that mm-hmm. is an acronym that I've certainly heard before. I know, and sometimes I've also heard that shrooms, something to do with MDMA. And so uh, are those both acronyms that are applicable to um, shrooms? Should I even be calling them shrooms? Is that, is that too much of a, I don't know, a simplification or anything like that? But I, I guess in terms of the actual chemicals, because, mm-hmm. you know, marijuana, THC, like people have right. like an understanding that's the chemical. What is the actual chemical component that we generally find in mushrooms, which give us kind of the experiences that you're talking about? Yeah, so psilocybin, magic mushrooms, shrooms, lots of different names for them. They contain a compound called psilocin. So psilocybin is the, is one of the compounds that your body reduces as it's digesting psilocybin into psilocin. And that's what catalyzes. Basically, it, it, it overwhelms uh, your serotonin receptors in the brain, which allows you to experience synthesis, synthesis, another hard word to pronounce. Um, where, you know, your senses are a little mixed, where you can access thoughts and feelings that you create walls in your mind uh, to protect yourself from thinking about, where you can really look inside your emotions and thoughts because you're returned to a state that's almost childlike, where your brain is a little more neuroplastic, it's a little more flexible for a few weeks after the experience. So that compound is called psilocin or psilocybin. DMT is a little different. It catalyzes experiences that are a lot more out of this world, you might say, uh, a lot more visual hallucinations than you would experience on psilocybin, depending on the dose. And then you mentioned MDMA, which is actually an amphetamine, which is a different class of compounds entirely, but it also very exciting class of compounds that can uh, make people feel a lot more connected with one another and work through trauma. So MDMA works a lot on oxytocin, uh, the chemical that bonds us, the love chemical, whereas psilocin, uh, to my knowledge, mostly acts on our serotonin receptors. So 
I'm not a scientist. Uh, I did pretty well in college chemistry, but uh, was by no means a chemist. So that's a that's a good overview of the science that I can give you. Okay, and to simplify it, basically, as you were saying, this helps release serotonin into the body. Yes. So when you have a psilocybin experience, uh, when you eat, say, like a tenth of a gram of mushrooms, then you'll experience like minor uh, euphoria. You might feel a little more focused throughout your day. That's what's called a microdose. Mm -hmm. And if you take a larger dose, say two grams to five grams, uh, you'll want to sit on your couch for a few hours and and ponder the meaning of life. Uh, Maybe listen to some great tunes, look at some laser lights, and then chat about that experience with a friend to unpack what you discover about yourself and what you discover about society in general. Mm -hmm. And you um, mentioned, and I wish I wrote down the phrase because I know I've seen it before, but basically the, there's a lot of mental health benefits that people are starting to explore in different studies. And I know that there was a Guardian piece, I'm just going to read uh, from it, in May of 2021, Natural Medicine published the results of the most advanced trial of psychedelic therapy to date. In our phase three trial of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, 88% of participants who received this in conjunction with trauma-focused therapy experienced a clinically significant reduction in symptoms. Another 67% of participants no longer met the criteria for PTSD diagnosis. So that's just one major study. And I have a little bit of a critique from it coming up. But before we go into that, what is the science slowly showing us about these type of drugs? So there have been clinical trials on LSD, on psilocybin, on all these medicines for a very, very long time. One of the problems is the sample sizes were quite low because it's so expensive to get exemptions from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, for scientists to do this work, right? So if you take a meta-analysis, which thankfully was done just last year, where you combine all of these sample sizes and studies that are similar enough to be compared, they found statistically significant benefits for treating depression and PTSD and anxiety with psilocybin-assisted counseling. And so MDMA is a little bit of a different compound, and we're really excited to see the research that's uh, being conducted on MDMA. There's a little bit of a corporate lobbying element to that as well, where they're trying to monopolize access to that medicine that I'd love to speak about later. But the science is pretty overwhelmingly clear that this is helping folks. Another study from just last year published in the American Medical Association's journal showed that psilocybin-assisted counseling resulted in remission for major depression in one in two patients. For context, that's four times more effective than SSRIs like Prozac. Another study that was published just this month in the International Journal of Drug Policy showed that a single experience with psilocybin mushrooms is associated with a 55% lower risk of opioid use disorder. That's, that's game-changing. We're losing almost 200 of our friends and loved ones to opioid overdoses in the Commonwealth every month. And if a single experience with these plants makes it less likely that people are going to fall into substance use, 
that's something that we should make accessible to everyone. Oh, absolutely. And you briefly mentioned how because of some of the restrictions around scientific studies, it's you cannot do really the same type of tri uh, trials that we can do with other drugs. And I just wanted to share um, with you somebody who commented on this Guardian article, a, a friend of mine, I'm not sure if you've met him before, um, Adam Gaffney. Um, he's a associate professor at Harvard. Um, he's a local mm -hmm. doctor in the area. He's a lefty. Uh, he's a friend. And his, his critique was just, I'll read directly, I would caution against such fervor and enthusiasm, referencing that psychedelics will be a catalyst for mass mental health when the trials demonstrating efficacy for these agents remain weakened by an important flaw, which is effective unblinding for obvious reasons. Basically saying when we normally do clinical controlled trials, one of the biggest elements that could swing it is if the doctors know who took what, <laughs> because they have a, an emotional invested interest in this succeeding, which is why uh, a blind in a study is so important, but that might be difficult to do when somebody took a sugar pill, someone else took a microdose. It's a little bit more obvious. And so I mean, you already spoke to it, how the different studies, but do you think that there is a direction that we might be able to get some sort of a randomized double-blind study? Are there other places in the world that are able to do this type of research that we just can't here in the United States? If you wanted to expand on that. Yeah, so that meta-analysis I mentioned earlier that showed statistical significance only looked at blind trials, right? So when you, it is incredibly important that you have those in, those controls in a scientific study that you have placebo uh, use in one treatment group uh, in the control group, and then you give the treatment group the actual compound. And so I think the integrity of that science is absolutely important, as your friend mentioned. What I would zoom out and say that in the big, big picture, this research is so expensive to conduct that you're seeing companies like Compass Pathways that are owned by the billionaire Peter Thiel. He's not a lefty. <laughs> He's a far right Republican who owns this company and plans to charge nearly $10,000 for a psilocybin therapy session. Those are the folks who can actually afford to conduct these trials to get approval from the FDA. So from, from my group's perspective, from my community's perspective, it is very exciting to see these scientific studies done, but we do not believe that there needs to be some impossible standard of research that we have to reach before we start to decriminalize them. Because human beings have been using psilocybin for thousands of years. The ancient Greeks, all over the world, we were gifted these plant medicines from uh, indigenous people in Mexico. That's when they made their reemergence into Western culture. And we believe that our Western model of science and medicine has become very, very corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry, which doesn't have to actually provide as much evidence to release a new SSRI as the impossible standard that the FDA holds for breakthrough therapies like psilocybin. And especially, and I know this is something that uh, some people might not be familiar with, is that when we have agencies like the FDA, they are so underfunded that they actually just rely on those companies themselves and say, hey, you do the experiment, you conduct the whole thing, send us your data and we'll edit it and we'll proofread it, basically. 
And so, yeah, there are some major problems when, again, we're relying on the people with these financial interests. And I promise you, uh, we will get to the, the corporate element um, of this, because I think, like, you know, looking at how marijuana legalization has unfolded, especially here in Massachusetts, there's a lot of lessons to learn. Um, but starting with the lowest uh, measurement, here in Massachusetts, I believe there are four cities and towns that have decriminalized. I'm going to give a shot and say Cambridge, Somerville, uh, Northampton, East Hampton. All right. You got it. Perfect. And, and you can vouch for me. I was looking at you the whole time. I wasn't using my notes. <laughs> and so uh, now for this one I do, because it's a little bit long-winded, but there is a resolution uh, that you sent me ahead of this, a resolution protecting adult access to plant medicines. It continues from there. And I, is this directed at the city of Boston? And before we get into like the larger elements, what are you hoping to see in terms of decriminalization in Boston? What will that actually end up looking like? And take it from there. Thanks for the question. So Boston is going to inspire the world with this resolution. Over the past year, we have mobilized over 800 Bostonians to email the city council to share their stories of hope, to share their resentment of the war on drugs that has destroyed so many lives and put so many people back in the gutter when they're just struggling with addiction. And this resolution would do three primary things. The first is that, like these other cities, if someone is caught with possession of any controlled substance, the worst ones, methamphetamine, heroin, that substance is confiscated from them, and then they are referred to treatment, not criminalized. In our jail system, people can have access to fentanyl. In our jail system, people's traumas that drove them to addiction become worse. They lose access to their families. They lose their jobs. They end up right back at square one. So we believe that there is plenty of evidence from Portugal, from Oregon, from these four cities in Massachusetts to say, we don't want the war on drugs. We want to treat this like a public health issue. And I'll mention there's a really strong economic and racial disparity to that element of the resolution as well. We did a public records request of BPD data and there's a two to one racial disparity in who those drug possession arrests affect. If you live in a brownstone on Beacon Hill and you're using cocaine, as we know many folks do, you're very unlikely to have a high stakes encounter with the police. But if you live in Dorchester, if you live in Roxbury, you're far more likely to get caught with possession and it end in serious charges that could destroy your life. And so that's the system we want to move away from, where we treat drugs like some boogeyman and instead treat them as the serious public health issue that they are. And as I was saying, so to clarify, this decriminalization would not just be for mushrooms, but would take into account other drugs. You, re uh, you referenced Oregon, and I know the state of Oregon, they decriminalized believe heroin, LSD, cocaine, as part of like this larger effort. So is this also what this resolution is attempting to do, or is it just mushrooms first and then a stepping stone to the others later? So it does. It decriminalizes possession. I think that's the key word here is you're, if you're caught with a small amount, you're clearly not trying to distribute it. You're not a drug dealer then we're going to refer you to treatment instead of the first response being jail and charges that can make your life worse. So that is the first part of our resolutions. And that's what's passed in these four other cities as well. The second component really does put the plant medicine first. 
because it's all fine and good to create safe consumption sites, to treat people who are addicted better, but that doesn't fundamentally fix our failing mental health care system like these plant medicines can. So because psilocybin and ayahuasca and ibogaine have such positive properties for spiritual healing, this resolution would allow folks to transport those plant medicines, to grow those plant medicines, to exchange those plant medicines the way these other four cities have. Because a lot of folks listening to this podcast, a lot of folks uh, who we meet just throughout the city, they want to try psilocybin mushrooms, but they don't know where to get them. And they might have a friend who can get them on occasion, but they're difficult to access because if you're growing them and you're caught by law enforcement, you could face pretty serious charges for doing so. And so we want to get rid of that fear, that completely unnecessary fear that is keeping us from growing the supply that makes it accessible for people. So that's the second part of the resolution. And so, uh, again, j- just to, um, to clarify, um, so like currently right now for those four cities and towns, it is the, these plant-based uh, shrooms included, which are decriminalized. Like, so, I mean, just to say, but like uh, heroin is not decriminalized in Cambridge, correct? Possession of heroin is decriminalized in Cambridge. Is so it for really? example, yeah, that's, that's what the resolution does. Yeah. So a lot of folks don't realize that because when we communicate this to the media, for example, I was on uh, WBUR. I was a lot more boring on that interview <laughs> than in this one, uh, to be fair. I just had to explain this two or three times to people because I think maybe the idea is still a little surprising to folks. Um, but those of us who have worked in addiction policy, those of us who have worked in drug policy, know that someone who just has a small possession of these harder drugs, arresting them and putting them in jail just isn't the way to go. It doesn't help them get better. So in all of those four cities, possession of all controlled substances uh, is decriminalized. There's uh, a minor exception to that. Uh, so there is a plant called uh, a cacti called peyote, which has been used by Native Americans uh, for over a century, many centuries, uh, but became a sacrament for the Native American church in 1916. And we don't decriminalize possession of peyote because We want to discourage non-Indigenous people from poaching it because there's a big sustainability problem. There's also a sustainability problem with toads that produce a a version of DMT and they're being poached as well. So we still believe that there should be some type of financial penalty for possessing those in future state legislation uh, as a conservation issue, but not as a criminal issue. So other than those compounds, we really do believe that just criminalization isn't is never the way to go. We should treat this as a public health issue. Okay, and that's that's fascinating. And uh, if I did a little bit more prep, uh, I'd love to go down the road about you know uh, maintaining some sort of I don't want to call it criminalization, but some sort of a penalty more mm-hmm. infirm. So like toads aren't being poached, and you have an ecosystem which is now being messed with. So I, I think that's a fascinating thing to go down. It might be uh, beyond my ability to today, but. Sure. I know as part of this, um, some people that I, I, I've seen, uh, you know, attack 
I think some way justly, some way unfairly, the legalization efforts around marijuana, basically saying, oh, like you're focusing on a drug that, yeah, a lot of white people also like to use. So let's decriminalize this one first. And like shrooms, for example, oh, well, that, I think, you know, the, in terms of criminal data I was able to access, there was like one arrest in Cambridge, I think in 2020, there was about seven arrests, I think between 2017 and 2019. So these aren't really criminalized anyway. Um, but however, you, you referencing that these other four cities have decriminalized possession of all substances, more or less, uh, to me is fascinating and very optimistic and something I would really love to see um, here in Boston, uh, particularly. And now kind of like gearing up towards a larger question. Do you see this as part of a pathway towards more like legalization and you know like let's stick with marijuana for a second i think in 2008 massachusetts through a ballot initiative decriminalized marijuana and then eight years later in 2016 we had another ballot initiative which legalized marijuana is that kind of like the path that you and your organization are looking at to model for the legalization of uh, shrooms, and now we can kind of get into a little bit more of like the corporate elements of what that brought about. Because while I was a supporter of the uh, legal uh, legalization of marijuana here, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. How we've actually administered the licensing one goes against what the actual law says we're supposed to be doing, and two has given us the highest prices, the worst product in the area, and all the very easy things to see once you allow a couple large corporations to get their tentacles in to really dictate the market. That was that was a lot. Pick that up any way you want. But is this a path towards legalization? What do you see the future of this looking like in Massachusetts? It's a brilliant question, and I want to give it all the airtime it deserves. I want to first go back to how you mentioned how there's been very few psilocybin mushroom arrests in Cambridge. So some unfriendly media outlets in the state have emphasized this and said, well, there's not many arrests for magic mushrooms anyway, so this movement isn't really that big of a deal. The issue isn't the number of people who are arrested, it's the amount of people who are afraid to grow. Because the reason why there's so few arrests is because so few people know about magic mushrooms. If you go table in these communities, a lot of folks maybe have heard about it or they associate it with the 60s, but they don't know where to get mushrooms because there's not many people growing them. So these protections are in place so that that market and that interest is allowed to grow and prosper. And if we didn't have that, there would, there would be a lot more arrests or there would be fear of arrest that deters people from growing. I would also add one of the reasons why we include ending the whole war on drugs, all those possession arrests, is because we're not going to leave our our black community behind in Boston. Like we are right there with the organizers that have been doing this work all along. We're here to build them up. We're here to give them credit. And we are here to, to make sure that drug policy reform happens in the most equitable way possible for everyone. Bay Staters doesn't raise money. We raise money for mutual aid groups that are doing that all important work across the Boston metro region. So let's talk about cannabis now. If you took the entire black wealth of Boston, every dollar out of everyone's pocket in that community, you could not open a single cannabis dispensary. That is a travesty. 
the way that we legalize cannabis in Massachusetts should be criminal. And quite frankly, it is because over half of the cannabis that is sold in Massachusetts is still sold illicitly over half. I think it's almost 60% because we have made it so expensive to open up a dispensary. You have to have a camera that looks at every square inch of your facility. You have to pay for expensive inspections. You have to pay to have a police officer basically stand outside the dispensary and be a a Walmart reader all day because we had this laughable idea that we needed to have all these regulations in place to prevent diversion or to keep people safe from uh, this boogeyman plant. And I don't think it was just fear. I think it was also deliberate corporate engineering because the out-of-state suppliers, the out-of-state uh, multi-state operators, they're the ones that are that are owning this market. It's not, you know, the veterans. It's not people of color. There are a few that have managed to break through with the state's very flawed social equity program. But by and large, the most volume is being sold by these very establishment, white, and, and very well-moneyed interests in the state. So we are going to fight like hell to make sure that if legalization of these, of these plant medicines happens in Massachusetts, that we're going to do it the right way, not, uh, not the white way. Uh, so what I mean by that is we don't think people should ever have to pay $10,000 for a psilocybin counseling session if they don't want to. You should be allowed to buy 30 grams of shrooms off your friend Kenneth or your hippie friend Rebecca and sit on your couch without a therapist or without a counselor if you want or take them in the woods and have a pleasant experience to experiencing nature. Uh, we don't think that there should be a licensing regime as many of these companies are lobbying for. We think that we should be as laissez-faire with these plant medicines as possible because they're non-addictive and they actually combat addiction. So that's a grand overview of what our vision is. We're not necessarily for legalization. If legalization is done in a way that only a few uh, corporate actors are allowed to grow and sell these plants, we're not for that. We'll be the first to come out against it. If legalization happens in a way where you have to buy an expensive license from the state, whether it be a $300 license for permission from the government to use shrooms on your couch, or maybe therapists have to pay almost $30,000 to $50,000 for specialized training, we're not going to stand for it because we believe our mental health care system, particularly after COVID, is, is imploding. We're leaving behind our first responders. We're leaving behind veterans. We're leaving behind people. And we already have a shortage of therapists. And yet some of these corporate actors that act like the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, they, they act like they're doing the world a favor by lobbying for licensing regimes so that they can sell specialized training to therapists when we already have too few therapists. We need counselors. We need people who can practice mindfulness with themselves. 
No, I, I, you said a lot of uh, very important things I'd love to echo. I mean, one of them just being how part of our regulations and the bureaucracy behind how we did marijuana legalization, I think absolutely in one part, it is a way to like assage fears. So like, no, 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 every square inch will be filmed. There's going to be a cop everywhere. But also part of it is corporations saying, yep, and ask for this. Yep, and ask for this. Because this has been unfolding state after state. They know how exactly to corner a market. And if you just have regulations around like the zoning of the building itself, I know I can afford it, but I bet you, you can't. And so we're going to put some things in. And I just really wanted to make sure people get that point. And spot on. And you talked about, you know, that you might not necessarily be for legalization. And I know this is something in left circles that we discuss a lot. The concept of uh, licensing, I am not as knee jerk afraid of, even though I've seen enough of how it ends up unfolding. I know it ends up just being in the interest of corporations. So you somewhat should be against it. So this is my way of saying I'm not 100% against the idea of licensing. Um, if it can be done correctly, but I don't have really much faith it can be done correctly. But you mentioned kind of like relying a lot more on home growers, we'll call it, like the ability to grow yourself or your friends. Am I correct that the process of growing shrooms is much more complex than it is of marijuana? Or is that just a myth? I'm just kind of reflecting on things I've heard in the past from people basically saying, you know, if they're not handled in this way, then this could develop or you need to have this going where marijuana, it's literally a weed, it can kind of grow anywhere. So it, 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 you don't need to go into too much detail. But I mean, I'd actually just I'm curious about the process of growing. Is it something that can realistically be done by like a lay person? Or do we really need a lot of licensing and specialization around the act of growing? Do you just want to take it from there? We absolutely don't need any licensing around growing. And the schemes that we have for cannabis, I'll add, the inspection schemes, the cannabis you buy from the dispensary is sometimes more moldy than the cannabis you're getting from your friend because while we have this inspection service to prevent that, a lot of the folks who actually work in that program are former law enforcement that don't know much about growing. And so... I think that that premise of like, that's why we need to have a legal inspection infrastructure. It sounds great in theory, but in practice, it's kind of silly. For psilocybin mushrooms, we actually teach classes on how to grow all mushrooms because they're all grown the same way. And uh, we, we had about 35 attendees uh, in Worcester actually to learn how to grow uh, all varieties of mushrooms, except the uh, illegal ones. We don't endorse illegal activity, of course. Um, but it was a beautiful class. It, it can be a little complicated when you're starting out growing mushrooms, but it is fascinating and very, very fun. In my opinion, far more fun than growing cannabis. I'd say that it's probably about equal in complexity, but once you figure out how to grow mushrooms, after you like get to the top of that learning curve, you'll be giving them away to neighbors like like it's nobody's business, whether it be oyster or portobello or psilocybin. Once you figure out how to do it, you will have just a supply that you do not possibly need. Uh, whereas cannabis, I think, is a much different product and requires a lot more volume to meet everyone's needs because people just consume it in much higher quantities. That's also why I don't think that growing mushrooms is ever going to be super profitable. 
I think that's the, the critical mistake of all these psychedelic stocks is people, people can flood the market just by growing psilocybin and drive it to a point where it really has to be a community thing. It has to be kind of a, a fun thing that one of your quirky friends does and you get access to it from them because there's just not a lot of profit unless you very, very strictly regulate the supply and basically create a scarcity mm-hmm. so that you can charge a high enough price to like start a business. Like that's why I just don't see dispensaries forming around like distributing psilocybin mushrooms. These are, these are compounds that people like to take once or twice in their entire lives. There's exceptions. There's people who like to take them once every few months or two or three times a year. But even that volume, you're talking about like, like 15 grams a year for like someone who takes them a lot. (laughs) So it's just going to be a much different market than cannabis and just inherently a lot less profitable, which is why these co-op models that have emerged in Spain, uh, these co-op models that have really just been the indigenous tradition all along with these plant medicines, I think that they're going to, to be the model that we should strive for. And also the model that kind of the economics wins itself to. And like, as I'm kind of reflecting on my own experience with them and a lot of the, the fear mongering that for decades we've had around all drugs, um, but you know, especially psychedelics, I think maybe one of the reasons I was so hesitant in my twenties to try it is, you know, you hear stories, oh, if you just have one little bit, it could break your mind and you'll be lost. And I just didn't know enough, like, you know, I'm okay with my current substances. But in terms of what we do know, in somebody who I'm going to say can speak on this with authority, because, you know, marijuana, the concept of overdosing really doesn't exist in, in how that drug operates. But I, I would have to imagine there is a certain level of psychedelics you could take, which would become damaging, which is why all these things need to be done somewhat um, intelligently. So in terms of the risks of it, is addiction something that people should be worried about where it comes to uh, psychedelics or again, just specifically with mushrooms? Is there overdosing, which we've seen in the past? If you wanted to speak to what are some of the larger precautions or concerns that do exist, doesn't justify them being illegal, but just do exist. Sure. Thank you uh, for putting the hard questions to us because that's a lot more fun and, and makes for a much better interview. Psilocybin is inherently non-addictive and non-habit forming. And the reason why is your serotonin receptors become very quickly overwhelmed by these compounds, both LSD and psilocin from psilocybin magic mushrooms. So If you were to take three grams of mushrooms and have a psychedelic experience, you know, you're sitting in your room, you're in touch with your thoughts. When you close your eyes, you can kind of experience the world in a much different way. You're not going to be able to have that same spiritual experience if you try to take three grams of mushrooms in a few weeks. You're going to have to wait a substantial amount of time probably about a month, month or a month and a half in order to have that same experience again, because your serotonin receptors uh, won't accept it. (laughs) You build a tolerance. And so for people who have had like a lot of psychedelic experiences in a short amount of time, 
they're usually the friends who then need to take like eight grams of mushrooms to have the three gram experience. And so you almost ration your tolerance out over a lifetime, at least anecdotally, that's what I can say of folks I know, that if they've had a lot of experiences, they need to take a little more each time to get back to that same experience level. I'll also say most people do not like to have psilocybin or psychedelic experiences very often. As you might know, they're very intense um, for good for in good ways. Uh, people who have so-called bad trips, I would encourage them to really like try it again with a counselor that has done this a lot. We have folks in our network who are just really lovely and caring people that would love to sit on the other end of a couch and read a book while you have a spiritual experience um, in a more comforting and controlled setting. And then also recognize that if you're having uncomfortable emotions, if you're having uncomfortable feelings while you're on a psilocybin trip, sometimes that's par for the ride. And sometimes that's the most therapeutic part of the experience because it's not easy to work through traumas. It's not easy to accept that our world is burning because we're doing nothing about climate change. It's not easy to live in the 21st century, but psilocybin can help you find a path forward for yourself within all of that misery we see around us. And so it can be a pretty uncomfortable experience for periods of that journey. But with the right meditation and with the right integration, talking about those experiences afterward, even uncomfortable emotions can lead to very, very positive growth. In terms of overdose risk, it's actually physically impossible to overdose on, on these plants. A lot like cannabis, uh, you'll, you'll fall asleep, be really out of it, you know, sleep it off. Uh, you should just lay in your bed and relax as much as you can, have a friend bring you some water and check in on you. But it's not actually possible to overdose. Um, what I will say, though, is with DMT, like ayahuasca, uh, that's a little more intensive experience, a lot more intensive an experience. And so people can become really dehydrated. Sometimes people vomit after an ayahuasca ceremony because they're asked to, like, not eat as much food for a few days. So ayahuasca is a little different, but also just not not very toxic and not very deadly either. Uh, Ibogaine, the plant I mentioned to you that helps people uh, who are really struggling with alcoholism and opiate addiction, that's recommended for people who have a healthy heart because that Ibogaine is pretty hard on the heart. It's it's this kind of the same psychedelic experience as psilocybin. It's just a lot more intense on your body. And so for Ibogaine treatments, we would like to see a future in which those treatments are virtually free for people in need, that they're provided on a nonprofit level, uh, and that you're supervised by a nurse. But we see that going potentially horribly wrong with, with the corporations in the space, right? So we think that the, the community benefits of curing addiction are so high that it makes sense for the government to provide that for free. We save a ton of money on the back end with less property crime, with less public nuisance, with having stronger and happier families that are not destroyed by addiction problems. So Ibogaine could be the exception of that, where you might want to have some regulations in place. 
but not all regulations are the same. We need to make sure that the laws that are written are very reasonable and don't choke access to this life-saving plan. Oh, fantastic. And as we're starting to wrap up, if people would like to learn more, get involved, what would be the best methods for them to do that? Absolutely. Thank you so much for offering this interview, Evan. I, I've learned a lot just by explaining a lot this evening. So our website is BayStatersNM, as in natural medicine, BayStatersNM.org. We are on Instagram and Facebook with the handle at BayStaters. Our Instagram is poppin'. Uh, we have lots of amazing content we share with folks. And on our website, you can access our free trip sitting training that's taught by an expert who has sat with uh, hundreds, if not thousands of clients. And uh, being a masculine female, she's experienced a lot of discrimination uh, for being queer and um, experienced a lot of trauma from alcoholism and her upbringing and yet has used that those tough experiences to mentor so many other people in need. So you'll want to check out that training. We're going to keep doing those trainings live um, in person when possible, uh, virtual when necessary. We also do grow trainings. Uh, we train people in activism for any cause that's worthwhile because we believe that this model of going city by city so that we can guide state reform, it's something that can help with carbon price ending criminalization of sex work uh, so that we look out for, for women who are in desperate straits, uh, ending poverty, uh, all of these important causes uh, across the Commonwealth can adapt this organizing model. And we're here to provide free tools and free training to anyone who wants it. So uh, that's how we'd love to stay connected and uh, just really grateful for your time, Evan. Yeah, James Davis from the Bay Staters, not starters, for natural medicine. <laughs> uh, thank you so much.